as regards the perfected poles of human communities that have preceded us in time and are other than us. A group of them were mentioned to me by name in the Arabic language. This was when I was given to witness and see them in the imaginal world of the Barzakh. This took place when I was in the city of Cordoba in a most sanctified vision. Among them were the separator, Mufarrik, the healer of wounds, Mudawi al-Kulum, the tearful, Baka, the elevated, Murtafa, the healing remedy, Ashifa, the effacer, Mahik, the successor, Akib, the sacrificed, Manhur, the tree of water, Shajar al the origin of life, Unsur al Hayat, the driver, Asherid, the returner, Arajya, the constructor, Asanya, the flyer, Atayar, the safe and secure, Asalim, the vicegerent, Al Khalifa, the apportioned, Al Maksum, the ever living, Al Hai, the thrower, Arami, the all-encompassing, al-wasya, the ocean, al-bahar, the attached, al-mulsaq, the, the guide, al-hadi, the rectifier, al-muslich, and the everlasting, al-baqi. These are the perfected ones whose names were given to me from Adam, upon him be peace, up to the time of Muhammad. May God bless him and greet him with peace. This passage from Ibn Arabi's Futuhat is remarkable in several ways. It's the first written record of his grand vision in the Andalusian city of Cordoba, with a rather enigmatic list of 25 names names that clearly indicate the prophetic figures in every human community prior to the time of Muhammad, but it's unique in portraying them as qualities or activities instead of proper names. And these qualities or activities are named only in Arabic without any further explanation or identification, except that it's clear they refer to very extraordinary activities. I have to say my translations are rather provisional because as yet I have found no clear way of determining the real meaning of most of these names of activity. There is no key to enable a reader to match them up to the names of prophets as given, for example, in his Fusus al-Hikam. All that Ibn Arabi makes clear in this context is that these names are all manifestations 
or instantiations of the spirit of Muhammad, the reality of Muhammad, the reality of realities, the perfect human being, which he says extends its support to all the prophets and messengers and saints from the time of the first human emergence up to the day of resurrection. His purpose in doing so seems to be to point out that from the fullest spiritual perspective, the plurality of realized human beings are simply like the many names of God, manifestations of a single principle. In other words, according to Ibn Arabi, the reality of the perfect human, which became known as the reality of Muhammad after his earthly appearance, appeared in specific ways to different peoples, different human communities, until it reached its final and fullest manifestation in the person of Muhammad, the superlatively praised one. Using the famous imagery of a wall, we can say that the human reality presented itself as a series of bricks until the final brick brought the wall to completion. And the final brick is the completion of the wall in time, but it's also the manifestation of the wall in its entirety and even the actual meaning of wall. At the same time, this human reality expresses itself in every era according to the requirements of the era and its people. This is the context within which Ibn Arabi describes the group that he calls the perfected poles of the human communities that have preceded us in time, whom he saw in the grand vision in Cordoba. Many of you will be aware there are other descriptions of this vision. First of all, written about 20 years later in the Fasus, God informed me and let me witness the essential realities of his messengers, upon them be peace, and his prophets, all the human ones from Adam down to Muhammad, may God bless them all, in a vision in which I found myself in Cordoba in 586. He then goes on to specify he was talked to by the prophet Hood. Elsewhere, he mentions it twice more with slightly different detail. I saw in an essential contemplation all the messengers and prophets. The only one I spoke with in that company was Hood. I also saw in another essential contemplation all the people of faith, those who have been in the past and those who will be up to the day of resurrection. The real made them appear to me in one and the same place on two different occasions. For the purposes of this talk, I want to concentrate on the first description I read, a vision described as occurring in space-time terms while he was in Cordoba in 586 or 1190, when he was about 25 years old. But actually, this took place not in this world, but in the presence of the Barzakh, the world of imagination, where spirits take on form and forms take on meaning. The encounter does not take place in this world, 
perhaps we can say it can't take place in this world. It occurs in an invisible realm that most people are simply not aware of, a world protected by its own inherent sanctity. It's a place that is totally present, but essentially hidden and access denied unless God wishes to grant it to one of his friends. Furthermore, the list includes all human prophets and messengers from beginning to end, each one representing their community, and that includes everybody. As the Quran declares, to each one of you we have assigned a path and a way of coming. Had God willed, he could have made you one community. The fact that Ibn Arabi was introduced to these messengers and prophets only through Arabic words denoting their function or activity shows that we're being presented with a very special group, incessantly building, constructing, like a colony of bees drawing out the sweet nectar from creation and providing the honey of inspiration. An army of specialists who guide, heal, water, rectify, and so on. Many, if not all, of these functions can be found in the life of Muhammad himself. For example, the thrower, Rami, immediately brings to mind the famous incident at the Battle of Badr, when Muhammad threw dust in the direction of the enemy to startling effect, and which was mentioned in the Quranic verse, you did not throw when you threw, it was God who threw. So bearing in mind that general context, I'm going to concentrate on the second name in the list, the healer of wounds, Mudawi al-Kulum in Arabic. He appears after the separator, Mufarrik, the one who first sets in motion the numerical series and who can be identified with either Adam or perhaps more likely his son Seth. I say Adam because there is a famous uh, account of the prophet meeting Adam on his mirage in which Muhammad discovers that the blessed people of the right and the blessing less people of the left are actually on the right and left of Adam contained within him. In relation to Adam every human being even Muhammad is separated or differentiated into right or left waxing or waning if you like. The Adamic principle is essentially separative because he was taught the names and the names are differentiated and differentiating. At the same time, we can see this separative principle demonstrated in the person of Seth, Adam's son, whose wisdom in the Fasus is that of breathing out in reference to the divine breath of compassion through which all the names are differentiated. So, what of Mudawi al-Kulum, the healer of wounds, the only one in this list, incidentally, who gets mentioned again? What are the wounds? How does he heal? And who exactly is he? Ibn Arabi goes on to say, his name was the healer of wounds. He is an expert in all the woundings caused by subjective passion, personal opinion, 
this world, Satan, and the soul. He is knowledgeable of the language of every prophet, messenger, or friend. He possessed compassionate vision of the place of his body's birth in Mecca, as well as of Al-Sham. Then his gaze was turned to an earth that was extremely hot and dry, where none of the children of Adam could go in their physical body. And then the punchline. We ourselves have taken abundant knowledge from him in a different manner to other people. I'll speak about that a little bit later on. So here we have a a set of five wounds caused by five specific human difficulties. Hawa, subjective love, personal passion, what we could call low-level sub-cardiac desire. Second one is Rei, personal opinion, individual, supracardiac judgment, especially used in Islamic law in terms of interpreting the Quran and Sunnah. Dunya, this world, this low world, in contrast to the hereafter. Shaitan, Satan, nafs, soul especially the soul which commands to evil. Interestingly, four of these five things are mentioned in a passage in his Kitab al-Isfar as special problems in terms of the voyage of salvation, which is the voyage of Noah, where the divine voice asks, Who are you that the real should descend to you in such a way? from the station of the me, your soul that commands to evil, your Satan, your world, your passion, do not cease to mock you as long as you are constructing this ark, the construction of salvation. In other words, we can't be free of these problems until our protective ark is built. The extra difficulty not mentioned in this list, Ray, personal opinion, is, as we're going to see, extremely important in the context of Mudawi al-Kulub. This unusual name has a strange rhythmic similarity to a special prerogative of the Prophet Muhammad, Jawami al-Kalim, Mudawi al-Kulum. Not only does this phrase, Mudawi al-Kulum, echo the poetic phrasing, but the root of the last word, K-L-M, is identical. And in fact, Ibn Arabi links the two ideas, which would be very strange in English, the two ideas of wounds and words. He says, speaking is the attribute that brings about effects in the compassionate breath. It is derived from the word wound, kalm, which means injuring someone by cutting. This is why we say speaking brings about an effect, like the mark of a wound on a body which is cut. 
the first word to cleave through the hearing of possible things is the word be, kun. The world only manifests through the attribute of speech. If the divine be has opened up manifestation, then the return of manifestation to its divine source must entail healing whatever wounding has occurred. In other words, a very special connection between wound and word inherent in the Arabic language, whereby cutting the skin reveals what is below the surface, just as words open up hidden meaning. In both cases, injury can happen, but they share a revelatory quality. So we can say that this healer of wounds possesses a very similar universality to Muhammad able to reveal the real meaning of suffering, just as Muhammad reveals the inner meaning of all revelation. This seems to be the reason, and I'm tentative here, that Ibn Arabi specifies that this medical expert who can treat these five types of psychic wounding suffered by all human beings is at the same time an expert in all the prophetic languages as if he possesses a universal language for speaking to human beings, whatever their condition. Physically, his birthplace is Mecca, the center of the world in Islamic terms, but he also has a special vision or outlook on this entry point into the world and of Asham, a rather vague term, as Bilad Asham literally means the land on the left, i.e. to the north. It's usually taken to mean greater Syria or Damascus, but it also includes Jerusalem with its holy house. The northerliness of Asham usually has a negative tinge to it. Cold winds, evil omens, calamity, disaster. In other words, the healer must have special experience of the world of human suffering without being removed from his perspective as the man of the center. His solar nature is evident in the way he also gazes at the desert, apparently unflinchingly, in contrast to everybody else. After this passage, we next meet the healer of wounds in the following chapter, which is to do with the knowledge of the divine breaths, and the knowledge and mysteries of their poles, those who have realized these breaths. And he describes these spiritual breaths as the fragrant breaths of divine closeness. This is related to the tradition of Nafas Rahman, the breath of the merciful coming from the Yemen, in the words of the Prophet, which incidentally Yemen is to the south, so the opposite direction to Asham in the north. Ibn Arabi describes how people of direct inner experience are inwardly aroused by inhaling some of the divine fragrance which wafts towards them from the realm of reality. That is, they are aroused by the southerly Yemeni breezes of mercy and they suffer from the northerly winds that bring affliction because they feel their separateness, their lack of knowledge and they suffer. 
So they seek out somebody who knows things as they really are, who can impart to them whatever they need for their own salvation and happiness. In short, a genuine spiritual teacher who can heal the wounds. Then Ibn Arabi says, they are made acquainted with a divine individual who possesses the secret they're looking for and the knowledge they desire. The real raises him up amongst them as a pole around whom their spiritual ship sails and a leader through whom their possession is set in order. He is called the healer of wounds and he disseminates among them knowledge, wisdom and mysteries that cannot be contained in a book. So he's not only a healer, capable of speaking universally, he's also now a divine individual, a pole of knowledge, someone who disseminates wisdom that cannot be contained in a book. Gradually, the contours are becoming clearer. And especially so, when Ibn Arabi goes on to talk of the fact that this man knows the mystery of time and of alchemical transformation, such as iron becoming silver through the alchemist's art and iron becoming gold by the way of privateness, which is a shorthand for the private face, al-wajj al-khas, which he calls here a most wonderful mystery. So now we're at a point where identification of this mysterious figure is possible. Both alchemy and astronomy, astrology, are subjects that come within the specific remit of the figure of Idris, who for Ibn Arabi is the prophetic Qutb, at the center of the worlds, whose spiritual authority is manifest in the fourth heaven of the sun, center of the heavens, and who represents the rising solar power of the East. According to Ibn Arabi, he is said to have been the first among the sons of Adam to write with a pen. The first spiritual outpouring of the supreme pen belongs to him. He was made to voyage until he reached the seventh heaven, so all of the heavens were in his compass. And then after spending time with the angels and gaining knowledge of all the heavens and how they influence the earth, and after also specifically coming to know that a flood was on its way, Ibn Arabi says, he descended and selected from among the sons of his religion and his way those he knew possessed mature intelligence and understanding. He taught them what he had contemplated and the mysteries that God had deposited in the high world. He wanted to preserve this knowledge for those who would come after them. So he ordered it to be inscribed upon rocks and stones. And the two words here, rocks and stones, that he uses are directly, uh, immediately in the Arabic. One suggests the rock of Jerusalem and the stone part evokes the black stone of the Kaaba, as well as the more evident stone hieroglyphs of Egypt. So what he seems to be emphasizing is that although he's the first to write with a pen, his writing, Idris's writing, is not necessarily what we think of as writing. 
It's not an artifact written as language written in books, but is carved as image speech into the spiritual places of this world. It was also, interestingly, written on rock and stone, the very things that can be alchemically transformed into gold. In addition, the healer of wounds is said to bring people back to their original nature, what the Quran calls the finest stature, and to remove the defects that come from the accidents of life and self-interest. And Ibn Arabi specifies that the level of perfection denoted by gold is the realization of servanthood. It is after this, as the Quran states, that Idris was elevated to a high place and settled, literally descended, in the sphere of the sun, the fourth and central heavenly sphere, where he was given, quote, the station of the pole and established in immobile stability. God made everything revolve around him and with him, whatever ascends and descends is brought together. He is one of the four ever-living ones who does not taste death. He knows about reviving the dead in a similar way to Chida, and like Jesus, was taken up out of this level of existence. So in summary, I'm not going to go into the figure of Idris anymore because there's quite a lot in the introduction of the book, but simply to say the healer of wounds side of it uh, his ability to heal is a function of his being the pole. And Ibn Arabi actually says, you know, no therapist can actually achieve proper therapy if they haven't already done it to themselves. His teaching is essentially alchemical, which means a whole psychomedical tradition since medicine, or the healing of the body, is very much a system science to the sacred art of alchemy, the healing of the spirit. Um, the usual view of alchemy as a kind of precursor to modern chemistry or something rather fragmentary and mysterious obscures the substantial and coherent teaching it represents. Alchemy or alchemical transformation in Ibn Arabi's understanding is a way of describing the return path to human happiness or rather, fulfillment. It's in fact the very purpose of human earthly existence, because this place is the crucible within which all transformation is taking place. Ultimately, he says, all happiness lies in knowing God. And the word he uses here is Allah. In other words, the name that unites all the names which means that the real aim of the spiritual journey is not simply transformation or being fulfilled, but the attainment of perfection or completion, kemal. And as he writes in chapter 167, not everyone who has found happiness is accorded perfection, <coughs> while all who are perfect are happy. Not every happy one is perfect. Perfection means reaching and joining with the highest degree, and that is 
assuming the likeness of the source. I'm not going to go too much into alchemy itself because it would take far too long, um, except just to observe one thing, that metals were thought of as growing and developing and maturing in the earth, just like all beings on the surface of the earth go through a process of development and maturity. So what we see as lead or tin is simply a defect that the original metallic ore has suffered on its way to becoming gold. To eliminate the defect requires the special art of this alchemical healer who understands the cosmic order of the heavens and the earth and works with it. So whether it is the metallic ore which has ossified at the stage of copper or iron or whatever, or the human being that cannot get beyond being enslaved by their desires or enthralled to their intellect, the alchemical healer or spiritual teacher who educates from the central degree of the heart tackles the problem by applying the appropriate corrective of elixir in order for the golden state of perfection to be realized. This elixir, incidentally, Ibn Arabi calls uh, for, the, for the Gnostics, the elixir of the knowers is the way of the private face. In other words, the direct connection which each being has with their creator. Now I want to give just a, a brief uh, description of a rather interesting and different view on this special heart medicine in a very different context, that of backbiting or defamation. Uh, generally he says it's a very bad thing, clearly, to talk about somebody negatively behind their back if hearing it directly would wound them. Uh, there are certain cases where it's commendable. For example, in the field of Hadith transmission, it's perfectly okay to criticize somebody who has falsely attributed a Hadith to the Prophet. Then Ibn Arabi makes a more general remark. God has created no sickness without creating for it a cure. And there are two kinds of medicine, a general medicine which everyone can take and a kingly royal medicine which only the kings and the rich can take. So before you think that this is to do with private medicine, the general medicine is repentance, tawbah, returning to God. The kingly medicine, he says, is only taken by the people of immediate experiential knowledge, the arif, the ones for whom God is their hearing and their seeing and their tongues. The very ones, actually, that the healer of wounds comes to teach. This kingly medicine is in Arabic taqwa, usually translated as godliness or piety, but actually meaning taking God as one's protective shield 
against all such blameworthy situations, including backbiting. And then Ibn Arabi says this, the real does not become a protection for the servant until the servant is wholly enveloped by him. The form of his being enveloped is that the real becomes his hearing, his tongue, all his faculties and limbs, as regards the particular sphere of action and capacity they possess. Then the servant becomes wholly light. So we can see here the um, characteristic uh, distinction made by Ibn Arabi between a general understanding behavior which is applicable to absolutely everybody, in this case, tawbah, repentance, turning to God, and the other, more deeply integrated knowledge and action enjoyed by God's friends, which means recognizing him as the only actor. In this case, he says, even backbiting is good for the servant who has to suffer it, rather like the benefit gained in taking disgusting medicine. And he gives another example, which you may remember actually echoes a hadith, Qudsi, on the day of resurrection, God will bring about reconciliation between his servants so that the wronged one will see some of the good that has come to him at the hand of his brother, for which he will be grateful to him, and then the two of them will both be blessed. So this unveiling, this transformative unveiling, which releases all the perceived rights and wrongs of the situation, is precisely an example of the healer of wounds at work. Now, as you know, Idris is the first prophet to be manifested as taken up or ascending after the fall or descent of Adam. So it's natural that the um, chapter 167, which deals with this prophetic figure, but without actually naming him, should speak first about alchemy, and then part two is about the ascension, about the mirage. It's clear that there is a, a link between the healing of wounds or the elimination of defects and the elevation of the human being to their rightful place as the likeness of the source. There's another feature of this 167th chapter which we can look at in the solar light of Idris. It's a journey depicted as being, this ascension is a journey made by two individuals. It's like a bit of a novel story. Um, one is a follower who relies on being taught by the divine instructor. And the second is a speculative thinker, a philosopher, a rationalist, someone who relies on their own individual judgment and personal opinion with regard to truth. And the two characters in, the, in this account receive very different treatment on their way up the ascension. But notice they're both making the ascension. The follower meets the prophets and he benefits from their wisdom, which is unlimited, and is ultimately raised up beyond all particularization. But the speculative thinker, the rationalist, only meets the planets and he becomes increasingly trapped within the limitations of his selfhood 
and cannot go beyond the seventh heaven at all. You may remember we came across personal opinion, Ray, as one of the specific problems that the healer of wounds can cauterize. And in this chapter, 167, we're given an amazing insight into the limitations of the ordinary mind as compared with the unlimited capacity inherent in the purified heart. Now this is something that Ibn Arabi uh, elsewhere relates directly to the discrepancy between what Idris's message really was and is and how it has been understood by successive generations. Now bear in mind that Idris is identified with Hermes, so we're talking about the whole Hermetic tradition. Not only that, but all the uh, Greek philosophy is considered as part of that Hermetic tradition because these are also under the instruction of Idris. In the following account, recorded by his very close student Ibn Saudakin, Ibn Arabi is very explicit. And bear in mind this is an oral account, so not for, not for the general public, as it were. I proceed in accordance with how the Idrisian reality has been unveiled to me. This came about when I examined the condition of the philosophers and the traditions that they pass on about Idris and the way they formed different opinions about him. I said to myself, I want to take this matter directly from him and understand what has caused them to go wrong. So I went into a retreat for 36 days and I came to know the matter from Idris exactly as it is. I saw how error had affected the ancients because of their own souls. This was because they related what he had said, then they interpreted it and held different opinions about it. This is just like the way the traditions of the prophet have come to us. One person declares permissible what another says is forbidden, based on their capacity to understand what he said. End of quote. So we have the wisdom of Idris, which cannot be contained in a book, and we're now being uh, shown how people have related to this over successive generations ever since, according to the different opinions that they have held about what he is teaching. So even if they relate what somebody said, they still comment on it, etc. Elsewhere, Ibn Arabi says this wisdom is really to do with the knowledge of Tawheed, which we can translate as either unity or the affirmation of unity, as a universal reality that human beings can witness and live, but they need reminding of. In a passage in, the, in his own mirage, Ibn Arabi says he met Idris, and Idris tells him um, that I was a prophet calling them to the word of Tawheed, not to Tawheed itself, because nobody has ever denied Tawheed. We cannot deny unity. It is the fact of things. Whether we know it or not is the question. 
And he says, we didn't say what we said on the basis of reasoning. We only said it on the basis of a single direct relationship, which is, of course, the private face, as he explains elsewhere, also described as the elixir of the knowers. So in this passage, he alludes to something he mentions briefly elsewhere. Idris's teaching was divinely dictated and subsequently misunderstood precisely because human beings sought to understand and know through the rational faculty. Um, 36 days turn out to have a meaning of, to, again, to do with uh, Tawheed, not to do with going into retreat for a specific period, but 36 is the number of the specific forms of la ilaha illahu, the tawheed of the ipseity, a form of remembrance that uh, is described as arising from the breath of the compassionate. And he says these six, 36 forms of tawheed, which are a tenth of the 360 degrees of the circle, or the zodiac, are like a charitable tithe that belongs to God. Finally, 36 is also the numerical value of the word ilah, meaning God or that which is divine. So the number itself points to the fact that whatever human beings take as a way of worship, whatever is worshipped as divine is always the same thing. In one respect, this is the primordial religion prior to any religion of the book. Humans are spiritual creatures inherently oriented towards worship and finding meaning in life. All religion has been founded on the more than human appreciation of the ineffable reality or unity underlying every moment, every state, every viewpoint. So far we haven't mentioned the last word of this symposium's title, love. So bearing in mind Goethe's, Goethe's aphorism, love does not rule, it educates, and that is more, I want to finish with the opening poem from a chapter in the Futuhat, which somehow summarizes a human predicament in the face of the mystery of the divine. This is the same chapter that uh, the healer of wounds is talked about in, in some detail. So this opening poem um, in some ways summarizes what Ibn Arabi is trying to get across in the, in the chapter of breaths. The world of breaths is part of my breath. The poles are the highest authority and sanctity. Their chosen one, their Mustafa, an eloquent master given inspiration with the ringing of the bell. I said to the gatekeeper when he saw me, how I am suffering at the hands of the guards. He asked me, what is it you seek, my child? And I replied, 
closeness to the master of healing wisdom. Who will intercede for me with the imam? Maybe a passing visit from him for one who would steal a glance. The gatekeeper said, He does not bestow his gifts of knowledge on someone who is self-sufficient, unafflicted by sorrow and suffering. Thank you very much.